I think it might be a good idea to begin today's sermon with a warning, parental discretion advised. Some content might not be suitable for all listeners. Today is the last Sunday in the Christian year. Today is called Christ the King Sunday because it is intended to be the last word in the story of Jesus. Next week, we will begin Advent, and we'll begin the story all over again. But today is the last word, the bow on the package. Given the pomp and circumstance that typically surrounds such coronations, I was expecting today to find something royal in our lectionary text. Maybe something glorious from the book of Revelation about Jesus sitting on his throne. Or maybe something majestic from the prophecy of Isaiah about how the government will rest on his shoulders. Or maybe something like raising Lazarus from the dead or helping someone who is lame to walk or feeding 5,000 with only a few fish and some crummy bread. Those kinds of passages would sound kingly. But no, what we find today instead is one of the crucifixion scenes. A stripped and suffocating man consumed by pain, a crowd of mockers spewing hatred, a man hanged between two common thieves. Today, I want to parade in confetti. What I get instead is a lonely hillside and a lot of blood. Can we then pause for just a moment and contemplate the paradox that is at the heart of the Christian faith? Look closely at this scene. This is our king. This is our king. If there is one moment in the Christian story that should slap every ounce of arrogance and self-righteousness out of every one of us, this is it. Our king was a dead man walking. His chosen path to glory was a cross, the symbol of capital punishment. Allow me to speak a word into a popular notion about this crucifixion. The popular notion is that Jesus was sent here to die, that he had no choice but to go to the cross because it had all been predetermined. You are free to disagree with me about this, but I don't believe that for a second. First, that this drama was all laid out from the beginning runs headfirst into our notion of what freedom of will means, and if we have free will, surely Jesus had it too. But even more compelling for me, his decision to enter Jerusalem, very publicly, no less, was a direct message to the authorities in Rome that he was willing and able to face the consequences of the deep antagonism he had created because of his extraordinary faith. In other words, I believe Jesus chose the kind of king he would be. So I don't think we should be surprised that the Christian year ends up right here. 
because we Christians believe that the very fullness of God, the true revelation of God, dwells at the place we call the skull, Golgotha. Jesus entered Jerusalem carrying only his faith and his courage. That probably didn't look like much to the Roman authorities. But I'm reminded of a line from the movie Cool Hand Luke, which is a wonderful retelling, by the way, of the Jesus story. Go back and watch it and picture Jesus and the disciples and look at that story again. Paul Newman, who plays the Jesus character after being beaten up by one of the fellow prisoners, says, sometimes nothing is a really good hand. Well, that's kind of what Jesus rode into Rome with, or Jerusalem with, when he came towards his crucifixion. I think something else is happening in this story too. At least for me, I see second chances all over this story. Do you ever wish you had a second chance? A chance to say something different or maybe a chance not to say something you said? A second chance to repair a relationship that was important to you? A second chance to make the most of a missed opportunity? Maybe a second chance to chase a dream that you once had. Or another chance to follow through on a responsibility you avoided. There are two kinds of literature, well, three or four actually. The two primary kinds are academically usually called tragedy and comedy. There's also a tragic comedy and there's also a fairy tale, but we'll leave those for another day. Tragedies and comedies that we know about. A tragedy is a story in which somebody begins the story having everything, and by the end of the story, they've lost it all. A comedy is a story in which somebody begins with nothing, and they end up the story with everything. I'm a tennis player, not very good anymore, but I still like to play. I'm a student of the game. I love to watch it. I love to watch people who know what they're doing. One of the more compelling stories from the tennis world to me was Andre Agassi. Most of you in the room at least know his name if you haven't ever watched him play. Agassi was this arrogant kid who showed up on the scene with really long hair and hot pink shorts and kind of an in-your-face attitude, and he was the new wave. A lot of people didn't know how to deal with him. But the fact of the matter is, he was a once-in-a-generation talent. And so he rose to become the number one tennis player in the world fairly quickly in his early to mid-20s. But Agassi, like a lot of other athletes who reached the very highest level, was pushed extraordinarily hard by a father. Not quite abusive, but not terribly loving either. And that relationship finally caught up to him, and Agassi got lost in drugs, and he had a very public, horrible divorce from his wife, and he just dropped off the scene from tennis for a couple of years. When he decided to try to make a comeback, his ranking was somewhere just below 200 in the world. Now, let me assure you, the number 200 tennis player in the world is still a very, very good tennis player. But it's a long cry from being number one. In fact, 
in tennis history, no player had ever dropped that deep to regain the number one position. So Agassiz begins this arduous climb, and he claws his way back through minor league tennis. And he makes his way back onto the tour, and you know the rest of the story. Long story short, he actually ascends to the number one ranking again. What's even more impressive is not the athleticism, but what he learned about himself along the way. And he noticed in his home how much struggle there was with the education of children and how the old model of educating was not working very well. And so Agassiz took it upon himself to create a new educational model, started a school there in Las Vegas, funded it, made sure that the students had scholarships to go. As of today, he has started 80 of those schools. Now, he's done that fairly quietly, under the radar. If you don't know Agassiz or know his story, likely you don't know that. But that's what he did with a second chance. He was the perfect example of a tragic comedy. He had it all, he lost it all, and he got it all back. And in the process, transformed himself and transformed thousands and thousands and thousands of students. I noticed today in Luke's gospel that Jesus forgives those who crucify him, and Luke is the only gospel that Jesus does this. He forgives all those who actively participated in his crucifixion. He forgave those who were even passive bystanders. He forgives Peter, who denies him three times the night before, but he goes ahead and promises that Peter will come back and he will give strength to the rest of the disciples. He forgives a centurion, the one who actually put him to death, who later seized the opportunity to confess that Jesus was innocent. He forgave those crowds from Palm Sunday that morphed into the crowds on Good Friday, cheering for him at first and then mocking him and shouting against him later. They all receive words of consolation. Even Barabbas, for goodness sakes, the hard-nosed criminal, the, the convicted murderer, even he gets a second chance in this story. And the one in this story that I'm most drawn to is the criminal that was crucified with Jesus. There were two, of course. One of them could only mock the suffering Jesus. If you're all they say you are, why don't you stop just hanging there and do something? To which his fellow criminal replies, don't you hold anything sacred? This man has done nothing to deserve this. We did, but he didn't. Then he turns to Jesus and he says this, I see kingdom in you. I see kingdom in you. Of all the things that happened to Jesus that day, of all the things that happened to Jesus that week, I have to believe that those words from that thief must have brought enormous hope and strength to Jesus as he was breathing his last. Clearly nothing went right that week. His own disciples left him. The authorities tortured him and humiliated him. And with hardly a, a breath left in him, a thief says to him, I see kingdom in you. 
And then he says, wherever you're going next, can I come too? And Jesus replies, absolutely. Do you see kingdom in me? Do other people see kingdom in you? I can't think of a single thing that would make me happier, more proud of my discipleship than for someone to say those words, I see kingdom in you. I'm wondering today how many of us here could name that one thing that you long for to have a second chance. That thing that has eaten at you for years and years and years. I want to ask you to do something. Take just a second. If it helps, close your eyes. Think just a second and name that thing to yourself. Do you know today that this Jesus, who because of his crucifixion we celebrate a day called Christ the King, do you know that this Jesus has the power to offer you a second chance? And are you willing to become a willing partner in that? Alice McKenzie is a, a teacher of preachers, and she's one of my favorite writers, and she writes this, what kind of king is this? who's crucified at a place called the skull with a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. What kind of a king is this who forgives rather than executes judgment on those who contest his power? What kind of a king is this who allows himself to be disrespected and abused without speaking a word in his own defense? What kind of king is this who allows even criminals to mock him without putting them in their place? What kind of king is this whose thoughts are on others rather than his own pain, even at the peak of his own undeserved suffering? How in the world can a crucified king bring us back to life? How can a forgiving king right the wrongs that have been done to us or right the wrongs that we've done to somebody else? How can a peaceful king end the wars that rage within us and around us? How can a compassionate king find the strength to lead us? He can't. Not if we envision our role in this scene as standing on the sidelines and rejoicing only in his suffering. But... If we are willing and able to look into the face and into the suffering of Jesus and to say the words, I see kingdom in you, then you are certain to hear him say to you at some point, of course you can go where I'm going. All of this is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.